Hello, beautiful. And what I really want to know is, what is good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today, I have Erin with me. She is quite impressive. She was a captain in the United States Army, and right now, she is the current reigning Miss North Carolina Universal. She's incredibly beautiful, if you could see her, and she is an absolutely lovely person. And since I've known her, I've seen her do incredible work helping female veterans, and she is just leading the way in making change, the changes that we need to see happening right now. So welcome, Erin. It's a pleasure to see you again. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was quite the introduction. Um I'll try to, I'll try to um, keep up to that standard. <laughs> that would be easy for you. <laughs> so my first question for you is, why did you join the military? I joined the military because I wanted to help people. That's really it. Wow. So many of us do, right? We just have that like spirit of service, wanting to give back to the communities or make changes in the world. And that's a lot of times that's why we join. Of course, I also joined for um, college money, to be honest. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It's a good reason. It's a good reason. Yeah. Uh, I just, uh, just wanted a higher purpose and to help others, so... Amazing. So tell me what, what was boot camp like for you? So I didn't have to go to boot camp because I was in ROTC. Um, so we just did some summer trainings and it was um, on a much shorter scale and you're just learning to be a leader and um, also learning the basic soldier skills. So I don't have the um, PTSD from the drill sergeant hats like a lot of people do. <laughs> so is that like field field training is what officers do, right? So it's um, like a college class and over the your four years of college and then we do FTXs during the semesters and um, for two two summers, you go to training for a month. Oh, wow. So ROTC is very different. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you, did you feel like a regular college student or did you just, did you feel different because you were in ROTC? Um, I felt for the most part, like a regular college student, um, a little bit more or a lot more busy. (laughs) And I, which is funny. I think I felt a little bit more mature, which I was not <laughs> any more mature. <laughs> but I was like, well, I'm learning how to be a soldier and how to be a leader. Um, but really, for the most part, you have one day a week where you're in uniform and doing army things. And for the most part, you're just a regular college kid. Wow. That sounds pretty fun. I almost selected ROTC. I had the option to do that and I chose to go in and enlisted. I think I've told this story before on here um, because, well, my recruiter really led me in that direction, number one. But number two, his big selling point was the time that I was going to owe to the government after Mm -hmm. I finished um, ROTC 
how much time I was going to be obligated. And it was way more than for (laughs) enlisted. And at 17, because I knew, I think in 10th grade, I was going to go to the military. So um, I took the ASVAB and like my junior year, most people were taking the SATs. (laughs) And and I scored well and I had options and I um, decided, wow, um, I think he said it was going to be 12 years all in with an active reserve. And I thought, Oh my God, I, I at 17, I was like that. I'm, I'm going to be like an old lady. <laughs> I'm going to get out of the military, an old lady. Wait, no, I want to have some other experiences. I won't, you know, I don't want to be under orders my whole twenties long. So that was my logic. Although I'm not sure if it was the smartest logic. Back then. <laughs> I should have had a little more guidance maybe, but um, no, I did enjoy being enlisted. It was cool. And I enjoyed getting out after five years with only three years in active reserve. So tell me how long did you have to dedicate to the military after you finished college? So I actually was ROTC non-scholarship. So I had an academic scholarship from the university or from the, yeah, from the university. And then I would receive the stipend that other cadets had, but I was not on scholarship for ROTC. So when I um, started active duty, I only had a three year commitment. Oh, wow. I should have I uh-huh. gotten a scholarship maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, um, I, yeah. So because my scholarship was paid for, for by the university and then I only had three years and I had already as soon as I got in I was um, earning my GI bill because it takes like three years to earn 100 Mm percent so as soon as I started active duty I didn't have to pay anything back I was already earning my GI bill that is awesome I lucked out I really don't know how it's amazing I was like a a nerd in high school I did you know well in my classes in high school so (laughs) Right on. Well, yeah. that's amazing. I'll, that worked out really nicely for you. So tell me then, after you finished with school and you got, um, did, did you go straight to active duty then after college was over? So I commissioned and graduated from college in December of 2014. Mm-hmm. And I had a start date of Bullock, which is basic officer leadership course for artillery because I knew I was, I found out I was going to be an artillery officer and it's basically like AIT. So it's the officer course, but it's only for artillery officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a start date of February of 2015. So it was, it was really kind of perfect. I had two months off after I graduated college. I moved back home with my parents, um, didn't even have a job really. I worked some like gigs and worked out a lot and got ready and packed my stuff up for my drive to Oklahoma to start Bullock. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So that's when you began your officer training. Um, Would would that be continued? Okay, so that's kind of like more schooling. So after that was done, then you were active duty, like officially. So, so I was active duty then, and okay. a lieutenant already. But so it's like it's like class with a bunch of lieutenants, and you're learning not how to be an army officer, but you're learning how to be an artillery officer. Gotcha. 
Okay, yeah. cool. So, so tell me yeah, then, Oklahoma, in Oklahoma. So tell me, what was active duty like for you? Um, I so first of all, Bullock was like a big surprise. Um, going into combat arms, I was thinking I was going to be in the field a lot. Well, no, um, artillery is a lot of math because it's a manual gunnery, and so it was very much a big learning curve. Um, the um, drinking from a fire hose learning style, but math, not like normal, what you would think you'd be learning as, um, you know, in the military. Um, and so that was about five months. And then I went to airborne school because I was getting stationed. I had orders to Fort Bragg with airborne school, TBY in route. So went to airborne with my friends, um, from like with a few guys from my bullet class. And then we all showed up at Bragg, um, probably eight months after I started active duty. So that first fall, um, and got thrown right into the 82nd has a very high op tempo and, um, it was just go, go, go all the time. I mean, I think I was at Bragg for like two weeks and had already jumped like three times because nothing is as important in the 82nd as, as airborne operations. And so like, as soon as you get there, you have to do your progress, your progression jumps so that you can be um, like a good paratrooper. Wow. And, so I mean, it was, cool. Go, go, go right away. Um, yeah, being artillery in the 82nd was really fun. Um, we went to the field a ton. Um, we're shooting. Um, it was really fun when we did the drop zone mission. So we would drop the cannon out of the airplane and then the airplane would go back around and then we would jump out after it, run to the cannon, to the platform, set it up on the drop zone and then shoot like live rounds. So that was like, that was fun. Um, I mean, it also like really, really sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I was thinking that I'm like, it sounds awesome, but also terrifying. Oh, (laughs) When oh you're my in the gosh. military, you just do. So it doesn't really yeah. matter. Like if you need a face fear, that's where you go because you get those orders so and you got to do it. And that's why I wanted to go. I wanted to be um, airborne because I am scared of heights. Oh so I, like, and I wanted to jump a lot to just face that fear. So um, every single jump I volunteered for, because I was like, eventually these won't be so scary. Um, that didn't really work out, but you did get to, you know, you, you get like the muscle memory down and you just don't really think about it. But yeah, I mean, jumping is, can be miserable. You're sitting there rigged up with so much equipment on for hours, like six, eight, 10 hours sitting there, like scrunched up wearing a, I don't 30 pound parachute on your back and you have a reserve on your front and then you have a rucksack hanging between your legs 
and your weapon strapped to you. And one time I had a jumping antenna strapped to me. Wow. <laughs> so it's like you're carrying like, because, and I was, um, I was little then. So I think I usually had as much, um, weight strapped to me as I weighed. Oh my more. gosh. Goodness. Yeah. But those points, I mean, it wasn't really like jumping out of the airplane. It was just falling. Yeah. Like I'm <laughs> like just, I just take a step out the door and just fall straight down. That's insane. So what can you describe for me what it felt like the first time you jumped? Yeah. So I was the first the number one jumper in the door. And so you're, the door's open. You're standing right there looking out. And I mean, it's, it's wobbly. And so you're like balancing, trying not to fall out of the door. And we, something happened and the, the um, bird had to swing around again. Um, and so I was standing in the door for like a long time, like a couple of minutes and you're way down without equipment. You're trying to balance. Um, and it was getting to the point. It was like a couple minutes longer than normal. And I started getting really nervous. And I remembered my ROTC instructor was like, just stare out at the horizon. So I was like, all right, just stare out at the horizon. So I'm just staring at the sky. Um, it is very beautiful, but then you get scared as soon as you look down. So I was just staring at the horizon. And then as soon as you, as they say, green light go, that training kicks over really, it really is good training. Like it's very much muscle memory and you just jump. And um, I say it kind of feels like when you get knocked over in a wave and you're tumbling and you don't really know like which way is up, which way is down, but you feel like air and, and pressure from all the sides. That's kind of like what it feels like when you jump out into the prop blast. Um, and it, and it's also, <laughs> I think like the entire process, um, like when they say, all right, stand up and hook up in the bird before you jump. You're like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. All right. And then you jump out and you're like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And then you look up and your canopy is open. You're like, okay, good. I'm good. My canopy's open. And then the ground's coming. You're like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. I have to land now. <laughs> <laughs> and then you land and you're like, all right, let me check all my arms, legs, back. Okay, I can move everything. Okay, I'm good to go. Oh, it's like wow. a series of like, panicking and then getting through it and then panicking again. <laughs> that is incredible. Uh, I know yeah. that there's a lot of jobs like that in the armed forces where you feel yeah. like you're panicking, then you're okay. Then you're panicking. Yeah. Okay. And somehow yeah. we just get through it. Right. Yeah. And, I just do. Mm-hmm. You don't have a choice. Yeah. So you just do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That's amazing. Um, it actually sounds both terrifying and super fun to me at the same time. <laughs> so. it's, it's, it's fun and it's, it feels good when you challenge yourself and when you push yourself and when you challenge your fears. So yes, I did enjoy it. I also hated it, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> so uh, tell me how did, so you, since you were an officer, 
I have a different perspective of the military because I was enlisted and I had my officers that I worked with that I loved, um, especially in the pharmacy at uh, Naval Hospital Great Lakes. Um, If any of them are listening, love you guys. They were awesome. (laughs) So um, how did your enlisted feel about you? Well, um, we should have them on here sometime. <laughs> Do you think? Because um, you probably don't really, really know, but like from your perspective. I I think they liked me. Um, so I was first female in the unit mm-hmm. um, in my mm-hmm. company. And it took a little bit for them to get used to me. But I overall, um, I think really, I think they preferred me at least to, you know, some of the officer, male officers they've, they'd ever had. Um, I, I think I just kind of naturally have a little bit more motherly instinct, motherly nature than a guy, especially. Um, and so I noticed that they kind of, felt that as well. And they actually, after a while, instead of calling me ma'am, they, um, cause I was only female. So they would just call me ma'am. They didn't have to call me like Lieutenant Scanlon because mm. I was the only one. Instead of calling me ma'am, it eventually turned into mom. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> um, which I think some people are like, what? But I mean, I think that meant we had a good, like a nurturing type mm-hmm. relationship. Um, but I noticed like sometimes they would just start telling me things that I don't think they would tell a male, um, leader, like about their families and, um, about their wives and their kids and stuff like that. Um, I think the other perk that they really enjoyed is I was always feeding them (laughs) (laughs) every time you're doing Every time, I was like, are you guys, do you guys have enough food? I'd bring donuts and energy drinks and all that crap. Um, so, and then I, and then I, I mean, we'll see what you think, but I think that females are often better at thinking multiple steps ahead than just mm. one or two. <laughs> so I think that, <laughs> I think that helps with a lot of the planning and stuff. Um, but really, like, I don't, I don't think there was a big difference. I was just another junior officer to them. Um, that I think the biggest difference was um, I cared about them as people, and it was a lot easier to see and feel that. Um, and I think that just came, that just comes naturally for me, and probably a lot of girls. Um, but. I mean, I really don't think it was that different. I mean, I still get dirty with them. After you've been in the field for a week, we all smell the same. Um, I still cuss as much as they do. I still have the same dirty and dark humor that they do. Like, it's just, I don't think it was that different. Oh, that's awesome. It sounds like it was an awesome experience. I mean, with the unit. Yeah, it was. Um, I loved my first, first years, first couple of years. So, uh, how, how many years did you serve? I did five. 
five. And you, mm-hmm. you really loved your first couple of years. So what was the turning point for you? So in my second job, I got, um, my first job, I was a fire direction officer for about nine months. And then I got moved to be the fire support officer. And that's a really fun, awesome artillery job as well. But I really feel like I got shafted because I only got into that job. And like a couple of weeks later is when I was raped. Um, And it just changed the entire course of my career. Um, Like unintentionally, I guess. Um, But it just was a horrible side effect um, of going through a trauma and then also filing the unrestricted reports. Wow. So that's completely understandable. I mean, yeah. as soon as you get into a new role, you have something traumatic and life-changing happen. I mean, the person, it's like you could stick a pin in your life right there. So the person oh you God. were before Absolutely. that is I, just... I died. I, yes. my, the person I was before died on that night. And I I think that's another part of trauma. It's like grieving the person you were before. Um, and it was... It was crazy. It was... Um, I went out that night with one of my girlfriends in Fayetteville off Fort Bragg. And there was an event going on with a military nonprofit. They were like having an event, like a fundraiser or something like that. And the head of the nonprofit, the the founder, um, I um, talked to him a little bit and then at the end of the night, he invited my friend and I to the after party. And we were like, okay, I mean, we're together. We're having a pretty good time. Um, let's go with these strangers um, to this after party that we didn't know where it was, which in hindsight um, was probably was like multiple red flags, but um, we were both drinking. We were both just hanging out all night together and I didn't get to hang out with her that often. So, um, we were just having a good time and we actually took a cab with the perpetrator and his friend. So it was me and my friend and him and his friend. And, um, we get to this warehouse in Fayetteville. And my friend and I got out of the cab and we were like, what, like, where in the hell are we? This isn't a party. This is like uh, an alleyway with a warehouse in it. So we, we literally said to each other, we're not staying more than 20 minutes. And I ordered an Uber and I told one of my friends, Hey, change of plans. This is a bad situation. We're not staying here we are going to come to your house. Ordered the Uber. I, um, it was, it was such a weird place. It was literally a warehouse that 
this these guys were using as a place to throw parties and um it was so so much a warehouse so while we were waiting for the uber i had to go to the bathroom um i have the smallest bladder in the whole world i always have to go to the bathroom so again i had to go to the bathroom so i asked the perpetrator where the bathroom was and he's like oh there's no bathroom but there's a porta potty outside on the side of the building so um i was like oh my god of course like as if this place couldn't get any more sketchy so mm-hmm. i set my stuff down with my friend go out the door and go into the porta potty and when i opened it the perpetrator had followed me outside and was right in front of me and that's where he oh my god um, I can talk about it over, but like that one part, I just can't really talk about. No, uh, that's okay. I mean, you have to be, <laughs> it, it's completely fine. You have to be completely comfortable. Whatever you feel is appropriate to share is, is enough. Believe me, it, and there are so many females out there that share this experience and they're not ready to talk about it. So they listen to this podcast and they feel less alone. So I appreciate any information you're, you're sharing um, in order to help other female veterans on their healing journey as well. So it was um, very, um, it's like, it's like what you would imagine out of like a horror movie. I mean, I was followed into a dark alley and he um, raped me on top of a junkyard car in a car junkyard on top of one of the cars. And I say this because like, as you'll see the whole rest of my life, I will have to be defending myself saying, no, I didn't want that to happen, which blows my mind because it's like, who would want that to happen? That's nobody. How would anyone think that that is, you know, I don't understand why as victims we have to defend ourselves. But. Uh, oh, I mean, don't get me started on victim shaming <laughs> because right. I have a huge right. problem with that. Like a right. huge problem with that. And in fact, with everything going on in the media and the news right now, I'm seeing a lot of that. Actually, um, one of my supporters um, sent me an image of someone publicly victim shaming someone and she um she tagged me <laughs> was i think i, I think i know what you're talking about okay so i was like oh my god so you saw it <sighs> yeah i like my blood <laughs> just like it just boils over how can you ever think that a woman wants that i don't care what she's wearing i don't care where she goes i don't care if she was drinking i don't care any of the circumstances no woman wants to be violated like that anywhere. I don't care if it was in, you know, a beautiful hotel with golden sheets 
No woman wants to have that taken from her anywhere at any time. And to try to make her feel bad, like she did something wrong or or earned it in some way or deserved it in some way, just makes me like so angry. I I just can't even, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was very much, um, just after I just had to get out of there. And so I like ran to my phone. Um, I had missed calls from my friend and from the Uber driver and my, um, um, we're just trying to like get out of there. And the perpetrator came up and he's like, Oh, you called an Uber. He's not going to be able to find you here. I was like, Oh my God. Like he, this was so planned. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. And I was like, well, I like was like fucking explain how to get here because I am leaving. And my friend was just kind of like, what in the heck? And I just started walking out of the building, out of the warehouse and walk down like the alley to where the road was that we came in. And, um, we saw a car that looked like an Uber and I stopped them and he's like, are you, I don't know, Stacy or whatever. And I was like, no, but I need an Uber. And he's like, well, you're not my Uber. And I was like, I don't care. And I got in the Uber and I was like, you can cancel that one. And I will order you right now. You are driving away. Just drive away right now. Um, and, um, so he actually, so I had just met him that night, but he gave me his phone number. So he had my phone number and I had his phone number. And when I was like walking out of the building, he tried to come up to me again and I like dodged away and just like walked to the road. And so he actually texted me, how are you doing? Yeah, I mean, and like, what, how, how, how do you think I'm doing? Also, why would you have to ask me that if, if it was consensual, like you could tell I was upset because you just raped me. Like he knew what he did. Mm-hmm. He knew what he did. The fa- like what, what really galls me of the whole thing there's so many parts, but what <laughs> me of this part is that afterwards you, you leave, you go and he followed, like he comes up to you again. Like he didn't even have the decency to be ashamed of himself. He was like, yeah. comes up to you. Yeah. Oh, hey, sorry. Uber's not going to be able to find, like, why are you talking to me? Number two, he texts you. He's going to text you. Because, and he had to text me because I wouldn't let him get near me again. Why he would he think he could? Did he have mental health issues? Why would he know. think he should ever go anywhere? And like, could you be like, my question is, could you be that sort of removed from reality that you would ever think that after you rape a woman, she wants to talk to you, be near you or have any like business as usual. Like, let's go back to hanging out tonight. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, 
I don't know. And I wonder like at what point in time he maybe was like starting to worry about if I was going to report or not. Um, because I clearly was like not just taking it. Like I was fighting back already at that point. Yeah. So, um, so I get to my friend's house and I actually texted one of my, um, other friends who like, I, I knew she had been in a similar situation at some point when she was young enlisted as well. Um, cause she was like a veteran, but I knew she had been through something similar. And so I texted her and I said, um, I, I think I was raped last night. I don't remember exactly what I said. Like, um, but I was like, I don't know, like the legal stuff, but like, I was taken advantage of last night. What do I do? And she's like, all right, I'm coming to pick you up and we're going to the hospital. I was like, okay, like that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I mean, it's very much like a whirlwind. I think it was good. I didn't have a lot of time to think about what was happening. Um, and that, my first, the first two friends, the, the friend that I was there with, and then the friend's house that we got to, they were both like appalled um, and noticed and helped me realize like what had happened, how wrong it was. Um, and so when my friend picked me up, I just went along and she had already called the 24 um, 7 hotline Sark for Fort Bragg. So a SARC, an active duty sexual assault response coordinator, met us at the hospital. And and I remember she was out front waiting for us. I was in um, like baggy clothes with like looking like a mess, so embarrassed. And she was like, she was so nice. She's like, do you want to talk about what happened? And I was like, nope, let's just get this over with. I don't know what we're doing, but like, let's just get it over with. So I did the whole um, sexual assault forensic exam at the hospital, which is traumatizing in itself. Yes. Um, I understand the need for it. Um, and I'm glad I had a friend with me and the victim advocate. And I think I just was like, I knew like this is what we have to do. Um I think at that point I was still very much in shock and confused, but I was, I've never like allowed someone to get the better of me or treat me, um, anyway, less than, you know, a person should be treated. And I also know what's right and what's wrong. And if something happens that's wrong like you're supposed to report it you're supposed to hold people accountable so um we did the exam and that took a really long time um they oh my gosh they like take pictures of your body um they look for injuries they write up a whole report and 
it's basically um, your your body is the crime scene and they're collecting evidence. Um, so as horrible as it is, I was like, okay, this is what we have to do in order to hold this perpetrator accountable. Um, so I got through that and my friend took me home and I just walked in the door, um, and fell to the floor and started bawling. And, um, it wasn't for a couple of days later. I, yeah, so that was like a Saturday. Um, the Monday I went into work and I went to see that Sark from the weekend from the hospital. And I was like, I need to talk to a chaplain, but, um, I'm ready to report, like to turn it into an unrestricted report, but I, I just needed to talk to a chaplain first. Um, and he was great. He told me what I needed to hear. I think, um, I don't know how he knew what I needed to hear, but he did. Um, and he was like, I'm so sorry. This person is a predator, but you're a leader and you, you join the army because you want to lead people and you have to hold him accountable because otherwise he's going to keep doing it. And I was like, yep, I got it. Um, I think I needed that like higher purpose. You know, this is why it happened to me. I have to report him. So, um, my, the SARC takes me to CID. Um, we file the initial report and then, so they collected like, um, you know, the basic information, what happened, where, and they had his, um, his phone number because I had his phone number. So, um, they were able to get his name that way. And then they actually, um, stopped me and they sent me away and they said, you have to report, you have to go to Fayetteville police department because it happened in Fayetteville. Um, we don't have jurisdiction and we can't take this report. So sorry that you just spent two hours telling this traumatic story, but you have to go to Fayetteville and do it again. Here we go. (laughs) This is where it gets, uh, this is where it gets good. So as I have learned now, that's not how they would have done it then. Um, That was not how it was supposed to go. Because when they looked up his name, they saw that he was active duty. I did not know. Um, I thought he was maybe a veteran, but I didn't know he was active duty. And no one bothered to tell me for like three weeks. And that was only the fail. Oh, my God. So I filed the next, that was like by the end of the day, um, or by the time we got to the police station, it was the end of the day. They were like, the detective's gone for the day, come back in the morning. So came back in the morning, filed the report with Fayetteville. Um, he asked me if I would take him to the site, to the warehouse location and show him where it occurred. And I didn't even know because we took that cab. So I had to pull up the Uber and find out where he picked me up from. And the detective drove myself and my friend to the warehouse. And that was one of the first times I had ever experienced a 
traumatic trigger. Um, like one of those makes no sense how the thing you're seeing evokes this reaction out of you, but pulling up to that location, I completely broke down and was sobbing and pointing out like the weirdest random things that I remembered. And he kind of figured out like exactly where it happened. And I was like, all right, this, I got to get out of here. This is, um, and I was terrified because I was so scared that he, that the perpetrator was going to see me with a a detective and know that I reported. And I do, I think one of his friends was there and tipped him off. Um, so that was so terrifying. And that is when I, when I got home from the police department after filing the report, that was when I realized um, I needed to tell my parents because it's to be involved in a legal, like the witness of a, of a felony um, crime. It's really scary. Like that's some serious. It's a big deal. Right yeah. Big deal. So I was like, I have to tell my parents, um, um, I was very fortunate. Like my parents are amazing. They've been supportive of me and my siblings our whole lives. Um, I knew it would never, you know, it's not like they wouldn't support me now. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to hurt them, but I knew telling them would hurt them. So, um, my friend helped me, um, because I was like, I could barely talk. So she like dialed up my parents and helped explain what had happened. And she was able to tell them a little bit more rationally about like going to the hospital and going to the police station. Um, That was a really hard conversation to hear my parents' reactions to that. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, But and they were all the way back in Arizona too. Um, so I was like, Oh God, like I know I'm putting so much on them, but thank goodness, you know, we had a great relationship and they've only ever been supportive. So, um, that's how all the legal stuff got started. Um, about three weeks after the assault, um, the perpetrator was arrested and charged by Fayetteville police department with um rape sexual assault and sexual battery and that was that was crazy um that was really made it really real um it's just obviously it's not something you ask for and it's such a serious traumatic thing but it's 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 so unfortunate that this trauma that you've been through now has to go through this whole legal thing, which is traumatic in itself. Yes. So, um, the next, that's where my military career really got off track. Um, I went from like being a very involved, good officer to like having appointments multiple times a day, um, having breakdowns in my office, having to go to the Stark's office all the time to cry. Um, 
it's crazy how these little stressors become the end of the world when you're like in the midst of right after a trauma. Um, you're just barely surviving. And so just the littlest thing. Um, so like, for example, something I realized when, when you're coming onto a military installation, you have to show your um, BOD ID. Mm-hmm. And I was every time before driving on into work, I always had my ID ready um, no one ever had to wait on me because I hate making people wait on me because I hate waiting on other people in their cars. So I always have my ID ready for the gate guard. Well, in those couple of months after the assault, I so many times got up to the gate guard and was like, oh my God, my wallet, where's my wallet? Got to get my ID out, scrambling to find my ID because that entire drive, I was so fixated on these like overwhelming thoughts and not focused on just like the drive and then getting my ID out five minutes early so that I was ready to go in. And I was like, I literally can't focus on anything else. How, how am I supposed to be a leader? How am I supposed to be a soldier? This is the only thing I'm thinking about because it's like your survival instinct. Everything else goes out the window. I can, um, I can just imagine how you must have been feeling at that time. It's, yeah. it's uh, I, like what you said about not having your ID card ready. I was thinking that um, when a trauma happens to you uh, and it has such an, an emotional impact, it knocks you right out of the present. Like it knocks you yeah. right out of the present tense and yeah. you begin to live your life in the past and in the future. So you're all, you become depressed and anxious because you're depressed, reliving the moments of the past and you're anxious with the fear of what's going to happen in the next moment. So you're never in the present, right? So how are you going to think to get your ID card out? Because you're either in the past or the future in that moment, right? Because I mean, I have never been like that ever. Like I'm always planning three steps ahead, et cetera. And, and I noticed that it happened all the time. I was like, oh my God, I am so distracted. It was, mm-hmm. it was amazing. I mean, not in a good way. I totally but, understand. Yeah. That is where I, that's the point where, like I say, before I loved the army and everything I did to the rest of it was really just surviving with a few high points here and there and the high points were literally my soldiers and my platoon that I worked with and that was it the whole rest of like my life for like two years three years was a nightmare how did you how did you make it to the end of your enlistment because I mean oftentimes if the military doesn't discharge you for whatever reason they come up with um we sometimes can't make it through, you know, and we need to get ourselves out. Yeah. So um, for, for officers, once you hit your obligation, you just stay in year to year to year until you drop your release from active duty packet. And then that means you have six months to a year left. 
So, um, and I think I was only, um, I think we were just about, or the trial was happening like the year I had hit my three years. So, I mean, that's how long it took. So, um, yeah. So I, I mean, I was just staying in for that. And I, I really thought that once I got past that, things would get better and go back to normal, which no way. But, um, so about a little over a year after the assault, um, probably 15 months after the assault, the local police department, Fayetteville Police Department and Cumberland County District Attorney's Office, um, who are the lawyers, they had set a trial date. Um, we were going to trial because they had a good case. They had a lot of evidence. Um, there's DNA. I mean, according to the detective, like he, I mean, and the lawyers, they're like, everything's good. Like we have a lot of evidence. Um so they set a trial date. So the week before the trial was scheduled, the military contacted me through my SVC, which is a special victims council. And that's a, the, um, the army or maybe the DOD, I think it's a DOD program, implemented the special victims council program a few years ago. And it's basically you have the prosecution, you have the defense, and then you have the SVC. And the SVC represents the victim only. No one else, not the government, not the accused, the victim. So even though um, the case was was going to trial in Cumberland County, on paper, I had a special victims counsel. And she was like, I'm here if you need anything. Um, but, you know, I won't really be that involved because it's being handled by the civilians. Well, the week before trial, she contacts me and says, the military just found out about my case and just realized that the perpetrator was also a service member and wants to try it wants to take the case back into their jurisdiction and try it as a court-martial. Oh, my God. We literally had a meeting um, in Cumberland County at the DA's office, and it was the, the prosecution from the military, the trial counsel, the special victims prosecutor, and the Cumberland County district attorney to figure out what the jurisdiction was going to be. And I asked someone, actually, who has worked as a victim advocate in Fayetteville for, like, 12 years now. And I was like, so did that happen before my case, or does it happen after? Um, Like, is that normal, or have they fixed that problem um, where the military, where Fort Bragg and the civilians get together to decide who's I'm going to try a case. And she said, I have never, I had never seen it before yours and I've never seen it since. So it was not a normal thing. They had never, ever done that before. And they've never done it since. Um, 
So red flags. I mean, I had no red flags at this point. I was just surviving, but yes, the military intervenes all of a sudden, magically right before it's going to trial. Um, they basically explain like the pros and cons to each jurisdiction. And I was just like, I am not taking part in this. I am not an attorney. I just want this to be over with. You figure it out. Whoever is best to handle this case, handle it. So Cumberland County signs the case over to Fort Bragg. So the legal part starts all over. The investigation is complete. They hand the investigative, all the evidence and all that stuff over. The legal part starts again. So now when we should have been at trial, um, the... The way that the military system works is the perpetrator's command decides if they want to press charges or not. The JAG suggests or advises that these are the charges that we could charge based on evidence. Um, And it was like the same as what the civilian police were doing. Um, And then it goes to the perpetrator's command to decide if they're going to press charges or not. And then the perpetrator's command assigns the prosecution. And um, the perpetrator got like a a army appointed defense attorney, and then he also hired his own attorney. Um, And they start the whole thing over and they start scheduling a court martial. So the court martial was, um, so this was like February of 2018. The court martial was scheduled for June of 2018. And I think the next biggest red flag that I obviously was oblivious to because my mental health was um, very much suffering at this point. Um, but my SVC, my army appointed attorney told me that she was not going to be able to go to trial and she's not going to be able to be my attorney at the trial because she was going on leave. Um, which I know because I now have all the paperwork for it, that when they initially scheduled the court martial, she, everyone put in their dates that they couldn't do it. And her leave was not one of those days. Wait, wait, um, wait a minute. What? Okay. Why would, so, why would she? You'll, <laughs> you'll find out. So, okay. Okay. Cause I'm perplexed so, here. Cause this is sounding like a whole yeah. bunch of bullshit happening and you, and the whole time you are not present because you're dealing with trauma and this is just uh-huh. happening to uh-huh. you. I had okay. no idea a lot of this was going on. She just tells me she's going to be on leave. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, whatever. This At this point, she had been my fourth SVC because they had rotated so many times. And I was like, whatever, what's a fifth? Just assign me a new attorney for the, for the trial. So I get a new SVC for the trial. I met him the day before the trial starts. Um, because I was in the field and, and this was had to happen. They pushed it back to like right before the trial date. So 
I meet my SVC the day before trial. And um, the first day of trial is the um, jury selection, the opening statements, um, whatever, like administrative stuff. And then the second day um, really starts the trial to me. I mean, that first day, um, my supporters that were like my family and friends that were there to support me, I was so short and mean to them because I was so stressed out um, to the point where like they wanted to go get lunch and were in on post in one of the um, shop ads or whatever they're called getting lunch and I'm in my ASUs because you have to be in ASUs for court martial and I'm staring at everyone looking over my shoulder thinking all these people know that I turned in this member of the special operations unit and all these people are looking at me as a traitor and as a target Oh like God. this is what's going on in my in my head um when i mean they probably have no idea who i am but right that's just like the whole like paranoia um so so second day of trial um i'm the first witness and i was on, put on the stand my testimony lasted like literally eight hours, like the entire first day was just me. Um, and it starts with the prosecution, who's the government, who's like supposedly like, like kind of on your side. Like they're the ones that are prosecuting the rape charge. And they um, question you and let you explain like what happened. And then the defense gets up and they, yeah, they, um, my advocates and stuff and the lawyers, um, prep me as best they could, but that is, um, at least as traumatizing as the actual rape, because you're having to defend your actions when your action was being in the wrong place at the wrong time and being the victim of a crime. I mean, really though. So this is why so many girls don't report. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you, I, I mean, I was trying to hold this till the end, but you are so brave. Like the, what you went through and what you endured is what so many are afraid of. It's in and justifiably so because what uh, eight hours on the stand and then part of that a large chunk of that being torn apart oh and my, trying to be proven that you made you brought this on yourself when you're the one who was attacked and the only thing you did was go somewhere mm-hmm. I, can, I, I, can my- I sorry can i just say also when you said that you went to a warehouse and that these guys threw parties there. So I served in the nineties and warehouse parties were the thing. 
You know how many warehouse parties I went to without ever even a thought? I just want to let you know that without one thought Uh in my mind about that, this could potentially be unsafe. I was in Chicago, by the way, in industrial areas all over the place, going into like some of the worst neighborhoods because of a venue, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, and Mm -hmm. I never once thought for a minute that I wasn't safe. And I went a lot of times with guys that I served with who fortunately had my back because I later, especially doing this podcast, realized that so many times I was in situations where something might have happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, and I became very aware of that since doing the show. So for them to try to shame you or to make you out to make to be at fault in any way, it just makes me so angry. Yeah. I mean, it was um, the entire time he, the defense attorney, when he would question me, he would start out by saying, isn't it true that, and then insert some made up thing that fit his defense. And so I, I do think and my advocates told me like I did a really good job. Um, I held my own. I mean, God, it took all I could to defend myself. It, it was, I was the, def- I was mm-hmm. the defendant. I was the defendant. Um, just trying to explain what happened and um one of the questions one of his areas of defense of their strategy of defense was um it is burned into my memory um that he the defense attorney put into exhibit my underwear and held it up in the middle of the courtroom. And that is when I lost it for the second time. But that was the worst. That was, it was really bad. Um, The judge like immediately had to recess. Um, My advocates like rushed me into the waiting room and had to put like ice packs on me. Thank goodness they were randomly in the freezer. Um, They almost called 911 because it was like a panic attack, I guess. I don't really know. But um, my goodness. Um, like a breakdown. Like you 100%. Had a, a breakdown. Barely. I would have, yeah. like, I'm just um, trying to imagine, like, I'm just trying to imagine myself in your shoes as you're telling yeah. your story. This is yeah. what I always do. And try to feel how I would feel if I were you. And as I'm envisioning them, in my mind's eye, holding up your underwear, how that there's no possible way that you couldn't have an, a reaction. And then I'm thinking, how could every person in that courtroom watch you have that immediate natural response and not go, something happened here? Yeah. Something, ha- you can't fake that. Something happened here, yeah. right? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So the judge is ready to bring us back in. I had to go back in, get right back up on the stand. He continued where he left off, um, but he did not come. The defense attorney did not come right up to the stand again. 
with the underwear in my face because I don't think he was expecting that reaction. And I think he probably regretted it. <laughs> I hope so. To be honest. But he wanted to continue on making his point. Mm-hmm. So instead, he, sh- he holds them up in front of the jury. And at this point, the same, like, how is this happening to me where my underwear is being shown off to other people to judge my character. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I'm Nope, I can't get through this. I can get through this. And so I closed my eyes. So I didn't have to see him and the underwear and the jury. And I, I'm like closing my eyes again. Like I, I can't tell the story looking at anything. Um, and just continued answering his questions, his, isn't it true that and just explaining how many I mean it was like me I sound like a broken record I was like I told you this is what happened no matter how you try to spin it that's not going to change what happened and it's not going to change my answers you're not going to trip me up like you're trying to do so I just was literally like rocking back and forth with my eyes closed, answering these questions. And I was getting like frustrated with him. Like, how do you not understand? I have told you 16 times what happened. And he's just trying to trip me up, trying to get me to whatever. And the point that he was trying to make was that because of my underwear wasn't ripped or stretched out, that it was obviously consensual. Like, oh, what, what, where is the logic in that? Because I, I, okay. I, I was like, what, where is he going with this? Like, what is this? Yes, that's my underwear. Really? That's, the def- that's where the defense rests? Because, because the underwear wasn't ripped, you must acquit? Really? Mm-hmm. That's, what, yeah. that's what we're doing? <laughs> oh, man. I have, I have studied so many, like, cases now. I'm so... I'm going to law school after this because of this. Good for I you, girl. I will be a prosecutor. Go get them all. Um, yeah, that uh, I will never forget that. Um, and my and my advocate was like, "That was awesome. Like you just kept telling him how it was, and you weren't even looking." <laughs> but you know, it's like you're not gonna. How can you spin the spin the truth? Like you can't. So, um, that was horrible, but I eventually got through it, the testimony. And when that was over, that was like the best night I had had in a long time. Um, my best friend was over to be with me and comfort me and whatnot. And I was literally walking around the house, sweeping and like basically like singing, like just so like, she's like, I have not, like, who are you? Like, I've not seen you like this in so long. And I was like, I just feel so much better. I did my part. I'm done. I did everything for myself. I stood up for myself and no one can take that away from me. And now the rest of the trial is all on the lawyers. That is not my responsibility. I did my part. So, um, the trial went on for another couple of days, more witnesses. And then, um, one of the, so you're asking about the SBC, the army, my army appointed attorney, right? This is where this comes in. Um, which by the way, well, okay. So 
the judge ordered my army appointed attorney, that girl who told me she was going to be on leave. She was a captain, JAG officer. That he ordered her to testify against me. Yes. What? Wait a minute. What? And I, I really can't explain much more because there's not anything else to explain. The defense attorney argued that because I told my SVC something and then she told the prosecution and then the prosecution turned it over to the defense, like discovery, like how it always goes, that that pierced the veil of attorney-client privilege and that she had to testify to everything I said behind closed doors, which wasn't even... So what he particularly wanted her to testify about was me telling her that I didn't want to talk to the defense attorney before the trial. That was like the revelation. And I was like, well, yeah, I told her that because she told me, she advised me as my attorney not to talk to the defense before the trial because she said they're just going to try to intimidate me. And I was like, okay, I'll just do what my attorney suggests. So this is how it happens, right? Apparently, yes. So apparently um, the, the the order was like already in motion from the judge who, by the way, the judge for my court martial was also the judge for Bo Bergdahl's deserter court martial. Wow. If that, if that makes you like, oh, okay, no wonder he made the victim's attorney testify against her. Wow. I mean... Um, so, the, the, the judge had I'm this speechless. in motion, and my SEC's boss, essentially, um, what I believe happened is he told her the judge is going to ask you to testify. So just go on leave. So that doesn't have to happen. Well, the judge was having none of it. And they sent the U S marshals to go get the SVC, my fourth SVC off of leave and bring her back to Fort Bragg to testify against me at the court martial. So that's what, that was one of the um, other red flags. Um, I didn't know about most of this during the trial because I think my victim advocates um, knew if they told me they believed that it was like conspiring against me and ordering my attorney to testify against me, that it probably would have broken me and I wouldn't have got through the trial. But um, that's what happened. That was one of the like WTF moments of the trial. Um, another one was that the 
and this happened when the Fayetteville was investigating as well. Um, they asked the Army to speak with some witnesses who were at the warehouse, and the Army said, no, you're not speaking to these guys because of where they worked. And then again, when the Army had the case, the prosecution also asked to speak with or also wanted to speak with those witnesses. And again, the Army said no. Um, when to get around that, they could have just made it a classified trial, which happens a lot with military. If there's um, some classified risk of classified information or something like that. And um, they just didn't do that. They just said, no, you're not talking to these witnesses from the party. Um, and so that was essentially how I believe I did all the right things, followed all the steps that the army and the military tells you to do and had absolutely no chance from the beginning. That is such a powerful statement. And as I'm listening to your story, I'm sitting here thinking, it is beginning to sound like the army itself, I mean, I'm just going to say it, didn't want this to go in your favor. They didn't want this perpetrator to be convicted, maybe because of his job or his rank or what he did for the military. But it's beginning to sound like to me, I don't know if the people listening to this episode got the same feeling, but I have that feeling. And especially in light of everything that we, we've all known have been going on is one of the reasons why mm -hmm. I started this podcast to begin with. But mm -hmm. Now, due to recent events, it's more apparent that change needs to occur because you can't just treat women like this. You can't just right. allow anything to happen to us, you know, on or off a military installation by one of our own that we're supposed to be able to trust and then go, oh, this happened. It's embarrassing. We're just going to keep it a secret. It's like, it's like a child abuse family, right? And the kids right. have to keep it a secret because the parents and the parents don't want to, you know, anyone to know what the horrible things that are going on in the house. Right. But horrible things right. are going on in the house. Right. You know? and I, I did everything I was supposed to do. I put my entire trust in the system. Um, and I, didn't relent and it felt like the whole process was like a like a courtesy not a justice seeking mission it was all right we have to do this because unfortunately there was enough evidence so we have to do a trial but obviously we don't actually care if the victim gets any justice and I do feel like what you said when with those um those natural reactions that I had like when I was testifying for eight hours um and what my family said too they were like 
there's not a single person in that courtroom who didn't believe you. There's no way they couldn't have believed what you were saying. But the thing that I believe is, it's not that the military doesn't believe you. It's that they don't care about your trauma more than they care about the perpetrator's career and contributions to the military. They don't care about your trauma enough to actually hold the perpetrator accountable. This is the saddest thing, like amongst the saddest things in the world to me, because we go into the military um, just expecting what's right. You know what I mean? Right. You go right. in idealistic. I like to say I was really idealistic. Yes, when I was I went very in, right? We're young. You know, you think the world, you know, there's evils that exist, but you don't expect them to happen to you. And when yes. they do happen to you, you expect justice, right? Because that's yes. what you think is going to happen. Never in your wildest dreams do you think, okay, and I mean, you're incredible, Aaron. You know, you already know I think that, that you just were like, you know what? No, I am going to stand up for myself. I am not, like, this happened to me, but I am not going to just take that this happened to me. And even though right. you, you very, like, understandably went through your trauma and came undone and had to try to put yourself back together and go through this whole process and relive it over and over trauma after trauma after trauma around this incident. Like you still fought and you still went through all of that to get justice and believed you would get it and then didn't, you know? Yeah, so um, spoiler alert, um, the perpetrator was acquitted. He was found not guilty of anything. And I think everyone kind of knew where that was going. But um, I, I get through that. I got through that by, like you said, knowing I stood up for myself all the way until the very end and past the end, really. Um, and no one can ever take that away from me, no matter what the verdict is. And, you know, if he had been convicted, I might have believed that the system was just, and I would have stopped there. And then I wouldn't be doing all of this advocacy work. You're obviously a veteran now. And you had to transition out of the military. So after all of this happened to you, how was it that it came about that you ended up getting out of the military after the trial, after he was acquitted and everything? Um, so after he was acquitted, I, it only took like two or three months and I realized I needed to get out of the army. Um, and um, my um, I ended up getting recommended for med board um, because of the behavioral health um, struggles. And, but um, even before that, I had already started working with, um, had already found my attorney and started working with her because as soon as she heard, especially my case where um I reported, I, how can you hold it against me? I reported everything. And then 
you ordered my army appointed attorney to testify against me in the trial. Um, and so she, after hearing that, she was all 100% on board. And that's where the victim advocacy work went from me, because um, it started with me advising um, a few military officers, um, the 18th Airborne Corps commander one-on-one, the force comm commander one-on-one, um, the law enforcement. Um, I was kind of like a, like a victim advisor. Um, but especially with the military, it really just felt like lip service. And even the few officers that I spoke with, like high, like three, four star generals, um, who it did feel like they cared, but then still nothing changed. So, um, though my advocacy work went from small victim advocacy to, um, writing new, working on a new, um, new legislation for that will help everyone in the military. Yeah. So, um, it's, I'm, I do feel like this work that I do is, um, my way of healing and, I just always just wanted to help people. So I'm like, okay, this is what I joined the military to do. So unfortunately it was like a trauma that got me to that situation. But um, here I am able to help others again. And I'm actually at the point for the most part, for the most part where I'm grateful that it did happen because I'm such a, I believe I'm a much better person now than before and have the opportunity to help and affect and save so many um, past, present, and future service members, which is all I care about. Um, even when I was just a lieutenant, like the people were always the first, my first priority. So, um, it's it's nice to be able to do that again to help service members and it's uh it feels good finally i finally feel like i know like what i'm supposed to do and why this happened that's really beautiful and i definitely feel that <laughs> very deeply because it it's why i do what i do and to try to help right. the other females <clears throat> who go through um, whatever they experience in the military, good or bad, to shed light yeah. on the fact that some people have really great experiences in, and that's awesome, you know, but a lot of people don't, and everybody deserves to right. be able to share their story. And the people who don't, maybe they're not ready to talk about it, but if they hear someone else went through it, it can help them heal in some way. And people yeah. who can come on here and maybe for the first time tell their story in public, it helps them heal in some way. And so for me, this yeah. is my way of giving back is to share these stories and to help people and inspire them. I mean, who knows, maybe someone out there, God forbid, has gone through something similar than what happened to you. And they're about to go through that court process and have no idea 
you know, and you sharing your story and going into such amazing candid detail about your experience might help them. It could even potentially save a life. So with that, wow. yeah, I'm, you never know. I mean, they, they say there's air quotes, 20 veteran suicides a day, but we know that there's way more than that. Right. And you never know what a woman or a male veteran is going through at any given moment, how they're processing their trauma and who knows, I don't know. It's it, but it's possible. And I've heard, um, very many times that being able to hear other people's stories and share your story can help. So you do, you just never know who, who's out there where your story might be their survival guide. Right. Yeah. So, um, last summer I had the opportunity to lead the restoration and like the indoor, um, indoor interior design restoration of the local rape crisis center nonprofit who literally saved my life. Um, so I went from like being the victim at the court martial to a year later leading that um and i mean i was like put in charge and it was amazing and one of the and i even put some of my own art and you know redid some furniture and stuff and in one of the rooms um the director wanted to put a sign up and she's like what what should we put on this sign and i told her um put i've been in your shoes and soon you'll be in mine and she was like, oh my God, I love that. And I was like, right? Because when I first started coming to rape crisis, if you had told me that a victim who went through this whole process, reported, went to trial, got no justice, and had been on the verge of being committed, then a year later, planned all this and designed all this and did all this, I would have been like, there's no way. Let me meet this person because this person doesn't exist. But I did. And I just want, I wanted others to see that there's hope. And like, I promise you, I was in that dark, dark, deep down place and never thought I would be out of it. Well, you are absolutely absolutely amazing. (laughs) I just, your story is just, wow. And the way you are so vulnerable and so open in telling it is just so admirable. And I I really appreciate you and the work you're doing for uh, survivors and to change the way the military handles these things and the legislation that you've been working on and to make positive change. And it's exactly what we need right now. I think more than ever, because no one, no one should have to experience it. Right. And we need to make changes so that women who are serving are safe to serve. Right. And protected and can get justice when justice is due. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for letting me share my story. Of course. And so I have, I, I know we've gone a long time and I really appreciate your time. Um, but I just have two more questions for you before we wrap it up. Okay. So tell me 
What advice would you give for our veteran sisters coming up behind you that they might be able to thrive in life? Uh, I would say... Stick to what's true to you and don't be afraid to ask for help because I, I stuck to what I needed to do, which was the stay on the righteous path and seek justice. And I needed help along the way and I was not afraid to ask for it. And that is, Probably one of the only reasons I got through it. Um, so please don't be afraid to ask for help. And you are you are more in company than you are alone. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Absolutely. Really, really good advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, like I always say, if we can help at least one person, then we've done our job. But I have a feeling... You're going to help a lot, a lot, a lot of people, Erin. Yes. I have a strong feeling about that and probably have helped quite a few already. So really amazing. And um, well, I know that you have a lot of things going on. So if anyone listening wants to follow along with your journey, where can we find you? Um, So my Instagram is at HeyAaronScanlon. My um, Facebook is at MS North Carolina Universal. And then the Facebook page I have set up for survivors is at Faces of MSP or the Faces of Military Sexual Trauma. And it's the same on Instagram as well. Um, And then if you're interested in the legal aspect and the legislative acts, aspect it's um ferrisdoctrine.com and that's my attorney's website excellent well i want to say one more time thank you so much for your time thank you for having me it has been an absolute pleasure to get to spend time with you again such a lovely person and um i want to wish you all the success and let's keep in touch of course so that I can follow along with your journey and cheer you on as you succeed. Thank you so much. And with that, you guys, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening today. I really appreciate you. I love you guys and I'll talk to you next time.